episode 304, How a Provider, Population Health Leader Who Went to Work for a Payer Thinks About Healthcare Transformation. Today, I speak with Steve Blumberg, VP of Practice Transformation for Guidewell Health. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I speak with Steve Blumberg, VP of Practice Transformation for Guidewell Health, a subsidiary of Guidewell. How's this for an interesting career trajectory? Steve spent the last decade working on population health and value-based care delivery on the provider side. Recently, he transferred over to the payer side, working for Guidewell Health, which is the health services arm of Guidewell, which is part of a family of companies, including Florida Blue. So, a payer, in other words. I wanted to find out a bunch of things from Steve, but the main one is this. How do, if they in fact do, payviders improve care for patients? Or what does it take for an organizational structure to drive triple aim results? Going into this conversation, here is what I was thinking about. Payviders have access to longitudinal data, potentially, that siloed entities will certainly not. They also have a goal to keep care affordable in a really real way, especially if the patient member client is on the ACA marketplace and shopping for premiums. My big concern with payviders, though, is whether they're in air quotes, HMO in drag, as they say. On the other hand, payers and providers, in the most cynical sense, have wildly divergent goals. Search hashtag MedTwitter any day of the week. You will find a galaxy of tweets wherein doctors complain about payers to just get a tiny sense of those wildly divergent goals. Do separate payers working with separate providers offer a kind of check and balance? A historical knock on this hypothesis is the inarguably crappy outcomes for like chronic conditions that U.S. patients have the privilege of paying comparatively ridiculous sums for. I couldn't tell you whether those crappy outcomes are a result of the separateness of payers and providers or some other factor, but so it is. Here's the short version of one of Steve's main points. It's not about control. It's about connection. It's about being able to connect with patients over their continuum of care. It's also about how consumers and employers are increasingly trading out choice and broad networks for an assurance of quality. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Steve Blumberg, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. Pleasure to be here today. It's very interesting, the perspective that you bring, because obviously you are working for a payer at this juncture on their provider side. I'm not sure if there's sides involved. That's right. And it's fair to describe it that way and slowly and carefully, because sometimes I have to check it myself. (laughs) So yes, you've described it well. If you're thinking like a payer but you're trying to build out a PCP slash provider practice, how does that change the calculus if it does? It's an interesting place to develop that thinking because I think I feel that I have a little bit and and the team I work with, we have the latitude to rebalance that pretty regularly. 
And there's a new element which had not been on my radar before, which is affordability. The products that we put into the market, something on the provider side, I didn't really have to consider. So we have to be very efficient with the care we provide, and we have to be very thoughtful about making sure we're working with the most optimized downstream services. So hospital care and specialist care, so that we are getting people who need that care, the care they need quickly and at the most in the most efficacious environment. You know, when um, interestingly enough, when I was on the provider side, I definitely worried about the total cost of care, especially when we were in risk arrangements. But making the products affordable was sort of someone else's concern. (laughs) And in our environment today, we worry about that quite a bit. And you worry about it because obviously, if the product isn't affordable, the total cost of care isn't affordable, then you're going to lose customers. Is that mainly the, you know? Yes, that one is a bit binary. And that's exactly right. While we care for patients in all sort of payer segments and classes, Medicare, commercial, we have a special interest in Affordable Care Act patients where Guidewell, our parent company, and Florida Blue, our sister company, have a significant number of members and, in our case, patients we care for in those products. And for them, affordability and price sensitivity is a a day-to-day issue. We have a significant focus on how we do these things efficiently. It seems like a much more rounded contemplation that the finances are, you know, part of it, which, as you just said, isn't something necessarily, at least historically, providers have been super concerned about because their intent is to sustain their own business. So if you're kind of creating value in a value-based equation, then the question is, you know, who's realizing that value, Right, which has come up a lot. It's a very appropriate observation. You know, when I was on the provider side, my focus on that would migrate from, well, it would be focused on the sort of the macroeconomic arrangement I had with the plan. And if this plan lost members and this other plan picked up members, if I was contracted with both plans, I didn't really suffer a any economic significant economic upheaval from that. Now there's exceptions to that. Which plan are, do you have a better arrangement with? And sometimes the incentives might be actually a little backwards because this plan that pays me better might actually may be more expensive for the client. <laughs> and now I worry about that. It's an important part of, of sort of our day-to-day calculus and how we bring products to the market. That's very true on the Affordable Care Act side. On the Medicare side, you know, by and large, our products are zero premium products and, you know, they look equal to the members. Then it becomes all about how you deliver care efficiently. And does this change how the caliber of the care that's delivered? You know, like one of the things that has been said is that, you know, as soon as you start getting captive populations or whatever you want to call it, that, you know, the patient can kind of get squeezed in that mix because you don't have necessarily multiple entities who are providing a check and balance in their own negotiations, or you don't have a provider who is completely focused on providing care and a payer who, you know, you don't have people niched in their own areas of concern. And, you know, when they work together, in effect, they're providing 
the checks and balances that might be necessary on a patient continuum. How would you react to that? Is there merit there? Or, you know, obviously there's pros and cons with everything. Sure. And actually, and I think in our case, and this one is unique to us, I'm sure some of our competitors do this as well. I'm just not as um, well-versed in it. We try to get some of these more integrated concepts figured out in the environment where we have more control. And then we try to bring them to contracted partners in our broader network as well. So, you know, in our hierarchy, we have our, what we call our Guidewell Health assets that are at the core. And then we're surrounded with strategic partners that we also try to bring our best thinking to. And we try to get it right in our more narrow environment first. So I think you're right. And I think the the conclusion I would draw is it's best curated in the most integrated environment, but it's not, we've taken the strategy of not holding it as secret sauce and allowing it to be uh, further promulgated so that at the end of the day, our clients and members can be the ones who see the economic benefit. You are the vice president of practice transformation. Is this part of what practice transformation means? Like if you're going to define practice transformation, how would you do so? That's an impossibly difficult question, (laughs) (laughs) but a a really appropriate one. I'll give you a sort of uh, 100,000 foot answer and then then a little bit of a a deeper uh, view. I do always circle back and I realize it's almost slightly cliche in this space, but I always circle back to the triple AM philosophy and how we help practices achieve that in all, all three elements, which keeps the equation in balance, is sort of a guiding principle. But in day-to-day practice, we have to bring all these elements together to transform, hence the title, how care is delivered, and to build on this construct that it is a relationship-based model where I heard one of your prior guests say that 80% of things that impact care happen outside the clinical setting. And we want to be the catalyst for that. And so how do we transform our environment to make that possible? That is what we do at its core. Day to day, I work with my colleagues to make sure we operationalize that and we think about the strategies that allow that to happen going forward. And in some targeted instances, one of our entities is a high complexity urgent care center model. We take on a specific sort of systemic malady in a market, in this case, expensive emergency room care. And we, in that model, transformed the way emergency care is delivered in a less costly but just as effective setting. And do you have it set up so that all of the practices that are, you know, sort of under your umbrella, as well as the payer arm of the business, you all have integrated data assets? Yes, and getting better all the time. They're well integrated. We still think there's room for improvement. And you'll, I'm sure, appreciate that so many of these things were designed to be separate. Just because we've put them under one umbrella doesn't make them all magically one. (laughs) And so, yes, we have access to data and analytics that are unique to our setting. Again, as we perfect those things, we take more of those learnings out into the broader market, but it's critical. Why do you say that? Well, because we take both a macro and micro view of our analytics platform. So we do need to look at broad movements in the market 
how our members are cared for, how they're utilizing care, where do we see illness burden jumping, and then all the traditional metrics, star ratings, and, and all the drivers that, uh, that affect those types of things. But then we're able to bring our analytics to the bedside, in our case, I guess the, uh, the exam table side, and bring tools and capabilities to providers that allow them to look at some of these care drivers in real time. That's not unique, by the way. That is a lot of entities, a lot of practices do that in the market. But what we're able to do is, I think, affect it uh, more quickly because of that integration. And then we bring out external tools to the table as well. One of our entities is effectively using a product called Innovacer, which I, I suspect others have heard of and use as well, which allows some of that table side thinking and a network curation. We we have one partnership at the plan level with Embold Healthcare, which curates networks for ASO clients. I'd rather let them speak for themselves, but uh, they do a, they do a really interesting job and have an interesting algorithm. And then we use another tool, Cave Analytics, to curate networks where it's a little more behind the scenes. We invent them when we when we can and we bring in uh, partner technologies when it's uh, appropriate. It's a constellation to say the least. I mean, are you steering members from one place to another? Well, in its macro sense, sure. But in the reality of how we think about it day to day, and again, I'll put the provider hat on for this, we're curating networks. If we have data that says that this setting provides better outcomes, has you know, this particular group uh, does a better job than other groups. You know, our job is to make sure that when additional resources are needed beyond the primary care setting, that we have sort of the smartest thinking about where we send patients. Handing them a book with 50 orthopods in it is a disservice to patients if you're responsible for their care. Uh, primary care physicians through the ages have said, here's who I would send my family to. Now we back up that intuition with data. And I could see that in that particular instance, potentially there's an alignment of incentives between, you know, what a patient wants and what a payer wants to a certain degree in the sense that if you are helping the patient get to the best provider, then the patient gets the best outcomes. And as we all know, you know, downstream costs are a thing. So if you go to an exceptional provider, then it tends to minimize downstream costs, even if the service itself might be a little bit more expensive, if you don't have all the complications and whatnot. But there is one big caveat with that. Everybody's interests are aligned, assuming that the payer is interested in the triple aim, as you mentioned before, and not just cutting costs. Sure. It does have to be a balanced equation. It's not a perfect equation. You know, we have markets in uh, Florida where there may be only one, I don't mean to make it pick on orthopedics day, but they may only have one orthopedics group. You have a choice of sending them 30, 50, 100 miles away for care. But practically speaking, you want to help the group in that community be as good as anyone else. And so you then enter a realm of how do you elevate performance you know, in specialty groups. And there are 
you know, a myriad of uh, approaches, tools, techniques at on our and our network team here at uh, Florida Blue and Guide. Well, certainly deploys those to you know encourage best performance in our broader products. I am new to the uh, <laughs> to the insurance side, so I mention these things carefully, you know. But in our our broader products, we contract with everybody or nearly everybody. In our more curated products, we try to make it clear that you know we have picked amongst the everybody to find the individual entities that will make the greatest difference. So it is very much a balancing act because the markets are, you know, sort of from an economic standpoint, they're imperfect. We don't have competition in every market. And so it would be your inclination to try to improve the existing provider organizations that are there as opposed to, for example, there's some national entities popping up, like, you know, you got Hinge Health, you've got centers of excellence that, you know, for example, Walmart is sending all their spine surgeries to. Sure. Our inclination, of course, is to work with our longstanding network and help elevate performance. But it's not impossible to think about how some of the national entities, they will show up and be market competitive. And we work broadly in our markets with those entities, you know, whoever's in the market, I should say. So if they come to the market, they'll, they'll be hard to ignore. You know, I was talking to Dr. Blake McKinney recently, and he said something which I had never really contemplated before, and it had to do with telehealth. You know, there's all these conversations relative to how is is a telehealth visit as impactful as a not telehealth visit? Trying to figure out what the outcomes of a telehealth environment are versus in clinic. And he said that's actually the wrong question to be asking. The right question to be asking is what's the agency that the physician has to ensure that patients get a continuous care or team-based care? So the question should be, how integrated is all of the data and all of the, you know, the physician network in a sense that the provider in clinic same rules would apply to the urgent care physician can say, look, this is the follow-up care that you need, but then has no agency or ability to help the patient navigate that care. Do you share that same point of view? Yeah, I do. I, it's, that's very insightful. And I believe we've set up our clinical environments to address that. Even the one I mentioned previously related to um, emergency care we do follow up. We make sure the referrals happen. In the case of that particular setting, if the patient actually requires admission, we get them to the floor of the hospital before we we turn care over. We don't say, here, go to the nearest emergency department. We've got arrangements with the nearby facilities to make sure they're direct admitted, just as if they'd gone to the, the emergency facility at the hospital. But con- control is, isn't the right word. It does manifest itself that way. But it is the connection with the patient and the fact, again, that they see you as part of a a continuous relationship, the guidance you bring them and the expectations you set forth become something they want to meet. That's where we think the most effective primary care takes place. If we're talking about team-based care, which I think we're talking about, (laughs) Mm -hmm. what do people get wrong? What's the biggest mistake that you see in practice that people say, I'm going to stand up, we're going to do team-based care here, and then they sort of don't? If I had to give the the first thing that comes to mind, because I can see it sort of anecdotally in, in practice in a lot of places, they can sometimes, I think, take deconstruct the components 
to the point where instead of it all being on the shoulders of the provider, the physician in most cases and the, and the uh, mid-level in, in other cases, instead of it just being on that individual's shoulder, the visit gets so deconstructed that you lose sight of the whole. So it is a balancing act. I think team-based care is fantastic. Getting uh, top-of-license care delivered makes the experience better for the patient, makes sure there's enough hand-holding to go around, but you can over-deconstruct it. And uh, the provider could lose sight of the patients they're responsible for if, uh, if that's not done right. Also, it can get costly if you... Uh, if you deconstruct the kinds of visits that don't need to be deconstructed, you know, the uh, archetype 25-year-old Superman patient who really does genuinely just have a cold once a year <laughs> does not need, you know, the waterfront thrown at them just because they have shown up in your environment. I could also see how if you aren't real careful culturally about how you go about it, that what could easily happen is that nobody now owns anything. Yes, that ownership is like the worst manifestation of the siloing that can go on. And it's important also, I think, in these settings, if the team is real, that when you throw in a curveball like COVID and an operational curveball like we're going to go virtual with a lot of care all of a sudden, if you are in a team-based environment, you can adapt to that and you can bring the core accountabilities to bear on new modalities and new ways of thinking. I think the other issue with sort of over-siloing the work also, you know, becomes that issue of you get very ground into the process opposed to the final objective. It's a, a little cliche, but you do have to continue to keep your eye on the ball. You know, one of the things that you have mentioned is the relationship within Bold Health, which is, as you mentioned, a curation of the network. One of the things that I've heard more than once relative to the direction that the market is going, especially on the, the payer side. You know, in the past, what mattered to consumers, members, employers was having the broadest network possible. You know, like yeah. your doctor's in the network. And now it seems more and more that entities, you know, employers and, and members, patients, consumers themselves are switching up choice for affordability. It sounds like you're seeing the same thing. I'd add one caveat to that. I think they're also trading out for an assurance of quality, that they understand that all choices in the market aren't equal, and they need better knowledge on which choices are better choices. And so if you can put together a model, and I think we have in so many instances where the whole market is available to you, but we can help you choose higher quality and lower cost settings that can make your care more avoid, affordable, but your outcomes predictably better. I think purchasers of care react to that. In this case, Embold came to the table through the employer wanting to look at the world in a different way. Sometimes employers bring their different needs and different thinking to the table. They're trying to innovate too. But to your core question, I don't think so much they're looking at cost alone. No doubt some are. But they, you know, they want to reduce absenteeism. <laughs> they want their employees to come back to work healthy. And over on the affordability side, you don't see this so much with larger employers. But again, back to the small and mids, some of them are considering whether or not they should continue to provide coverage. It's incumbent upon us to help them see the value in continuing to do so and to bring them affordable products, choices, and great clinical environments that help them meet their goals. So you see across the marketplace a real true ability 
of employers to evaluate quality care. And I say this because if we're speaking about patient slash members, it's really difficult. And, you know, there's been any number of studies, research looking into this, how difficult it is for any given, you know, human to evaluate quality. So you're saying from an employer's perspective, there is actually a critical mass of employers who are have the two bits of that, you know, they are capable of evaluating quality and also they want to. I will tell you my evidence on this is anecdotal, but yes, I firmly believe that. They think about large companies' purchasing habits. You know, they are after certain combinations of things in the goods they purchase. And I would say that it hasn't been true with every company that they have made the purchase of healthcare more of a procurement activity, but many have. In doing so, they are seeking, you know, really good quality on behalf of their members. I think to some degree, leaning into the difficulty that you just referenced in in the members having that choice. Also, you know, I've been told by the folks who manage these things for us with with our clients, they still want to make sure there's low disruption to members when they're switching from a competing carrier to ours. And in my prior life, at any number of times, I have, have worked on just that, having your hospital or your health system go out and decide whether they want to change carriers. And we talk about all the things that we've covered during this conversation. And at the end of the day, the HR executive comes in and says, how, you know, how many employees are going to yell at me because we kicked their doctor out of the network? <laughs> and uh, so we do have to pay attention to that. It's not a non-issue, but I don't think it's the top issue anymore. We've talked about a lot of things. Is there anything that I forgot to ask you that you definitely want to make sure you mention or based on what we've talked about, there's some sort of summary that you would like to put forth? You know, I think the migration to value-based care vehicles and the centering of population health concepts in the delivery of care is not the exception to the rule in primary care any longer. If nothing else, COVID, I think, has solidified that point of view. Um, It'll be very interesting to see in in a post-COVID world how well patients in these settings who contracted COVID did, how those who didn't contract COVID did, whose care was accessible during this environment. I think there's a body of work that will come forward in the coming years that'll be fascinating. And now I think it's the responsibility of the market to catch up to these constructs where they're not already in place. And patients, I believe, are beginning to demand these more sophisticated front-end alignment settings, these value-based care-centric environments. And they will continue, I think, over time to be proven out to be not just better places subjectively, but uh, will meet, I think, uh, these continuing and evolving measures based on the triple aim. So thank you for that question. Appreciate it. Steve Blumberg, MBA. Thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of All of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week 
the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.